So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. When Heidi was growing up in Scarborough, Ontario, her father worked at the local John's Manville plant, which manufactured pipes. And one of the things she remembers best is the Christmas parties. And I remember being very young and going to a Christmas party at John's Manville. I must have been maybe four or five years old. And they had a Santa and everything and presents for the kids. Heidi Von Polesk is a writer, actor and activist who lives in Toronto. But they also allowed us to go through the factory. And I remember as a child thinking that it was really pretty with all the fairy dust everywhere. It was all in the air and shiny. Heidi remembers some of her dad's co-workers making little snowballs out of the dust and throwing them at one another. And so at first it was a very benign substance. But it didn't take too long before we started to know that there were problems. That fairy dust-like substance has a name that's now infamous around the world. Asbestos. It's a stringy mineral that's mined out of the ground. And up until a few years ago, it was a prime Canadian export. It was at the heart of a massive international cover-up that lasted decades. It helped spark the quiet revolution. And it's responsible for the deaths of millions of people around the world. But to Heidi's dad, asbestos was just how he made his living. So my dad, he filled what he called the hoppers. So there's like a lot of pipe fitting that was made with uh, asbestos. So he worked in that section. So he he was handling the asbestos. He was lifting it and moving it. And in those days, no one wore masks. I would say that I was aware of, of health being a concern for my father when I was about 13 or 14 years old. By that point, Heidi's father, Wolfgang von Polesk, had worked at the Johns Manville asbestos processing plant in Scarborough for a decade. Heidi knew that a lot of her dad's co-workers were getting sick with lung issues. Many of them were smokers, so the doctors chalked it up to the tobacco. When he was working there, he would do double shifts. So he would do 16 hours at a time. And he would do that so that, you know, so that he could buy a farm for us, so that we could be together and in a, in a healthy place. But he was killing himself doing it. Soon, it became clear that her father was becoming ill as well. He'd never smoked in his life. We were aware that my dad likely had asbestosis. Over the years, Heidi's father's health declined. He was indeed diagnosed with asbestosis, a disease caused by inhaling tiny asbestos fibers in the air. 
The minerals hardened around the lining of his heart. He was diagnosed with prostate cancer and eventually lung cancer. I remember the last um, scan they did and, and reading, and it said it looked as though his lungs were filled with ground glass. So when my dad got sick, we were very, we were prepared in a sense. We, he'd already had a series of, of heart attacks and, and heart failure. They had discovered asbestos around his heart and his lungs. We knew that, that it was eventually going to get him. And we had seen his friends die as well. Wolfgang von Polesk died in 2007 at the age of 79. In some ways, he was lucky. He had outlived most of his co-workers by a decade. But the story wasn't over for Heidi's family. Asbestos is a patient killer. And for a century, it's been one of the deadliest industries that Canada has ever produced. They used to call it the Miracle Mineral, a fireproof material with a million different uses. But now, every year, over 250,000 people around the world die because of asbestos. Corporations and countries have known how dangerous it truly is for a very long time. And not only did they cover that up, they treated asbestos workers like lab rats in a twisted experiment. But asbestos isn't some historical curiosity. More Canadians die on the job because of asbestos than anything else. And those numbers are only going up. I'm Archie Mann, and from Canadaland, this is Commons. There's a town in the eastern townships of Quebec called Val des Sources, which means Valley of the Springs in English. But up until last year, it had a much more infamous name, Asbestos Quebec. For a century, Canada was one of the world's biggest producers and exporters of asbestos. And up until 2012, much of it came from the Jeffrey Mine in that little town called Asbestos. We sent Canadaland producer Tristan Capicchione to see what the town looks like today. So, just walking down First Avenue generally looks like like many small towns. It's about one to two square kilometers. The town formerly known as Asbestos may look like a normal small community at first glance, but there's one thing that makes it very, very different. All of it is built around the massive Jeffrey Mine. I'm just getting to the summit of this road where there's going to be a lookout just approaching the observation site they're showcasing different types of rocks and the geology behind them fortunately I don't think any of them are asbestos which is probably a good thing so the pit is just gigantic I get the feeling that it must go you know 15 stories deep something like that and at the base of the, of the pit, 
it's filled with water and the water looks very pure blue and with a little bit of green all around on the upper levels there's trees all around but you can see the roads where they slowly went down and you can see the the different ridges where they progressively got deeper and deeper into the pit it seems like it's about the same size as the town itself just looking at it you can't really tell what kind of rock or material it's it's made of but there's only one real explanation there i suppose it just looks so harmless it really is quite pretty but at the same time can't help but wonder just how safe it is to be around all of it as soon as you go to that community you never forget it I'm Dr. Jessica Van Horsen. I am a historian who specializes in environmental health and contamination. And asbestos in Quebec has been my world for a number of years. Jessica is the author of A Town Called Asbestos, Environmental Contamination, Health, and Resilience in a Resource Community. And she first visited that community on a whim with some friends as they were driving through Quebec. It appears like a solid rock kind of with wool inside. Um, And when you throw it up in the air and it lands, it lands in this cloud of dust. And what really struck us immediately was there were children playing in that pile of asbestos next to the mine. And these children were playing with it by throwing in the air and, you know, cheering when it would land in this cloud of dust. And, you know, I don't boast about being able to hold my breath for a very long time, but it kind of makes you want to meet the world record of how long to hold your breath because you're like, this isn't okay. Most people probably know two things about asbestos. That back in the day, it was used as insulation in many buildings. And that it causes cancers. But many people don't realize that asbestos is actually a mineral and that it's mined out of the ground. It can withstand temperatures of, I think, 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And so it's, it's pretty fireproof. And we have... Ancient stories of its use, Charlemagne apparently used it as a party trick. He had an asbestos tablecloth that he would whip out under his guests and throw in the fireplace and bring it back out completely clean because the food would burn off of it, but the tablecloth wouldn't. Industrial use of asbestos didn't start until the 1800s, but it truly became an everyday material during the First World War. Industry finds wide uses for asbestos in the construction of its buildings just as the farmer and homeowner do. So do schools, hospitals, and public buildings. Yes, products of asbestos fiber make an important contribution to practically every phase of our lives. Because suddenly we need soldiers to be fireproof, so let's make asbestos uniforms. We need buildings that won't burn if they're in the line of fire, so let's make a fireproof building. It became even more common as a household material during the post-war era. You were safe if you had a house with asbestos in it. And the people of Asbestos Quebec and the surrounding communities were proud that they were the ones supplying so much of the world with this magic mineral. Asbestos was first discovered in the region in the late 1800s by William H. Jeffrey, a gentleman farmer for whom the Jeffrey Mine is named after. It just looked like a woolly rock and he started picking at it and realized what it was. But even when it comes to asbestos mines, the Jeffrey mine is unique. Normally, asbestos deposits and other mineral deposits in the ground are usually formed in lines, like lightning bolts through, through the earth. 
And in what became the Jeffrey Mine, it's actually a circle. So it looks like a tornado, kind of an upside down tornado. And that was something that made that site particularly unique in Quebec and in the world, actually. By 1918, it was the largest asbestos mine in the world. In that year, it was purchased by the Johns Manville Company, the same company that Heidi von Palask's father worked for. Johns Manville was a building supply company and was the world's biggest manufacturer of products made from asbestos. The financial muscle and technological know-how of this big American corporation allowed the Jeffrey Mine, and by virtue, the town of asbestos, to grow rapidly. And so this really was an explosion. Suddenly, everyone in town had a job. Maybe some people were getting cars. That was progress. That was profit. That was industry is good. I'm in the right place. And something that the Quebec government really did to help that was advertise Quebec workers as being especially cheap, that you could invest here. You could have more employees here because these employees came at a bargain basement discount. Bit by bit, the mine expanded, forcing people to leave their homes and move further afield. Historically, it's had this nickname, the mine that ate the village. The workers were willing to make those kinds of sacrifices. After all, the Jeffrey Mine provided jobs and decent wages for the community. You were going to lose your home, but you were losing it for the future, because the future was bright, because the mine wouldn't be expanding unless business was good, and you would have a job, and your children would have jobs. So you look to the future because you could, and you sacrifice the past because it was over with. The future was brighter than the past. The economic growth kept most workers fairly happy, and they were proud that the fruits of their labor were helping rebuild the world after the Great War. But just below the surface, tensions were already beginning to fester. And the Johns Manville Company was willing to go to extraordinary, even obscene lengths to make sure that the profits kept coming in. First, there were clear divisions between the miners and the managers. It's really indicative, I think, of Quebec's history and mining history in Quebec that everyone from Johns Manville spoke English and all the workers spoke French. And so it was that kind of a a kind of colonial relationship in some ways that was established there. That divide between English-speaking managers and French-speaking workers was reflected in the very geography of the town. Upwind is where Johns Manville company employees lived, and downwind near the mine is where French-Canadian workers lived with their families. And even though the workers were proud of the product that they mined out of the ground, they didn't know, at least initially, how dangerous it really was. thing is, honestly, asbestos does sound really great. It keeps people safe. It makes cement very strong. Your building won't burn down. Your children will be fine sleeping at at night. But it kills you. (laughs) And that's what's wrong with asbestos. In 1924, Johns Manville opened the first asbestos processing facility in Asbestos, Quebec. That same year, Nellie Kershaw, a British woman who worked in a textile plant, became the first recorded asbestos-related death. And that was when one of the biggest cover-ups in history began. Because from the 1920s, Johns Manville knew that asbestos was harmful. And they did everything they could to stop that from coming out. One of the first things the company did was to fund a department at McGill University dedicated to workplace safety. 
And so by funding this new department at McGill for occupational illness and disease, they had access to a whole slew of researchers and they gave them a new lab. They gave them new equipment to work with. But the researchers were censored at every turn. And in asbestos, Johns Manville began to provide workers with free health care. This was a time before we had subsidized health care in Canada. And so in asbestos itself, they had a Johns Manville hospital where company doctors were paid to give yearly physicals for every employee, which was seen as a huge perk because no one else was able to afford such a thing and it was free. Over and over again, the doctors found signs of asbestosis amongst the patients. But instead of telling them, they simply lied. And so they would say, okay, you smoke, don't you, sir? Yes, I smoke. Okay, so that's why you're coughing all the time. How about we move you from this part of the industry to that part of the industry, which was less dusty, to help you with your smoking-related cough? And then they would write a memo to the company, Johns Manville, and say, this man is dying. That practice of lying to workers about their own health continued for decades. Here's Olivier LeMay, the president of the union of one of the asbestos mines, speaking to the CBC in the 1970s. Every year we go to the clinic and we get examined by the doctor of that clinic. And we find out that lots of our guides that go to the clinics, well, they didn't tell them if they were kept by asbestos or not. And two months after, we send them to Montreal to get checked up by CLSEAT. And at that time, they came back with 10, 15, 20, or 25% asbestosis. And the clinic just told them that they were okay. At the center of this cover-up was a man named R.H. Stevenson, the company doctor. Stevenson is, he is a really interesting figure in many ways because... Asbestos-related disease in the early 20th century was still very new, right? That Nellie Kershaw died in the early 20s. And after that, it was just a time of discovery. And so Stevenson, who really wasn't qualified for this kind of medical research, said, cha-ching, I'm in a great place right now. I can capitalize on this. I've got basically a, a living laboratory around me, and I'm going to try to profit because of this. Stevenson manipulated the data and helped to create dangerous myths about asbestos. That asbestosis wasn't actually so bad. That Canadian asbestos was totally safe. It was just that asbestos mined in Africa that was dangerous. And uh, he was a huge actor in that misinformation. He was being paid by Johns Manville. He was being courted around the world and he loved it. And then when he retired from the medical practice in asbestos, he became mayor of the neighboring community. He was beloved because he looked after them. And clearly he wasn't looking after them. In the 1930s, a global medical consensus was emerging about the dangers of asbestos. And workers in the United States were launching lawsuits against Johns Manville and other manufacturers. But most of the workers in asbestos Quebec and the neighboring communities never heard about this. And language played a big role in that. And that's another advantage that Johns Manville found with having mines in Quebec, that they basically were a cocoon from sort of excessive information coming from the states. And because they were cut off from the English-speaking world, Johns Manville used the workers of asbestos Quebec as lab rats. 
And that is not an exaggeration. John's Manville would secretly autopsy dead workers and smuggle their organs out of the country for research. It's so crazy (laughs) that it's just something that still hasn't widely been discussed, but it's around between 50 to 70 people from asbestos who died, had their lungs secretly autopsied without their family's consent or their consent. They were put into the trunk of John's Manville's lawyer's car, and he drove them across the border to Saranac Lake, this laboratory in upstate New York. And the walls were lined. They were lined with the lungs, preserved lungs of these dead asbestos workers. John's Manville researchers would monitor the lungs to see how asbestosis progressed. And in this way, they really did make asbestos a laboratory, and the workers were lab mice. It was at the secret laboratory that John's Manville definitively learned that asbestos exposure causes cancer. And that was kept a secret because people don't understand what asbestosis means. It sounds, you know, silly. People know what cancer means, and it is deadly. And so it was a huge effort to cover this up. By the 1940s, workers in asbestos could see that they were getting sick, but the company continued to lie to them. It wasn't until 1949 when a French-American reporter named Burton Ledoux wrote a huge expose for Le Devoir about asbestos Quebec, where he definitively laid out the evidence that asbestos was killing miners and their families. Asbestos miners aren't likely to read a medical journal, even if it's in French. When it's in Le Devoir, someone picks it up and then they share it at the cafe and it gets shared and shared and shared. And suddenly everyone knows what that's doing to them. That year, the workers of asbestos did something that reverberated throughout Quebec and even the whole country. They went on strike. The asbestos strike of 1949 is commonly viewed as the beginning of the Quiet Revolution, where Quebec's francophone majority threw off the yoke of Anglo oppression. But that's not how the people of asbestos Quebec see it. It was just so traumatic in so many ways. They don't think it started a quiet revolution. They just think it made them not have wages for five months and their families almost starved. At the time, Maurice Duplessis, the authoritarian anti-union premier of Quebec, still ruled over the province. He was the one who said, these are cheap workers. They're docile workers. They're obedient workers. They won't give you problems. And so the strike in 1949 in asbestos was deemed illegal. Duplessis sent in the provincial police force, the SQ, to break up the strike and escort strikebreakers to the mine. What started out as a peaceful strike soon became violent. The police began to round up strike leaders in the middle of the night, even invading churches and beating people next to the altars. And they took key strikers into the basements of buildings to torture them. They tied them up. They beat them. They threatened their families. And the police torture was being supervised by managers from the Johns Manville Company. And company officials were there monitoring the beatings the whole time, sanctioning the beatings, and showing their power within the community as well. It actually really does illustrate, though, the connection between government and business at the time. Because the SQ wouldn't do what any company official would tell them to do. They were given an instruction, these are your new commanders. 
And the commander was the head of the Canadian arm of John's Manville. And he was there saying, beat him more, beat him more. I think he has some more in him. After five months, the strike came to an end. So the community was brought to its knees. They did get some victories from the strike. Specifically, they became the best paid miners in Canada as a result of the strike. But when it came to health and being protected from the dangers of asbestos, the workers got next to nothing. In fact, that same year, Johns Manville discovered through x-ray scans that 475 of its 700 employees in Quebec had early signs of asbestosis. But a secret company memo written by A.R. Fisher, who went on to become the president of Johns Manville, confirmed the corporation's policy. Here's what it said. It must be remembered that although these men have the x-ray evidence of asbestosis, they are working today and are definitely not disabled from asbestosis. They have not been told of their diagnosis, for it is felt that as long as a man feels well, is happy at home and at work, and his physical condition remains good, nothing should be said. As long as the man is not disabled, it is felt that he should not be advised of his condition, so that he can live and work in peace, so that the company can benefit from his many years of experience. Should the man be told of his condition today, there's a very definite possibility that he would become mentally and physically ill, simply through the knowledge that he has asbestosis. Instead of telling these men and women that they were dying, the company said nothing, so that the miners would keep coming into work. Over the next few decades, lawsuits against Johns Manville began to cripple the company in the United States. But in Canada, the Quebec government protected them from liability and they continued to produce as much asbestos as they could. And so from the 60s through the 70s, Johns Manville's policy in asbestos seemed to be get as much out as possible while we still can. Put it to market while we still can, while we still can. And it was sort of just like bailing them out and funding basically the lawsuits that were happening in the States. And the company, supported by the Canadian and Quebec governments, continued to tell the lie that Canadian asbestos was somehow safer than asbestos from Southern Africa or the Soviet Union. Despite the lies, the dangers of asbestos were becoming more and more well-known. In 1962, an American researcher named Irving Selikoff definitively proved that there was a link between asbestos exposure and cancer. And whistleblowers began to emerge from within John's Manville. Kenneth Smith had long been the medical director for Johns Manville in Quebec and had helped orchestrate the cover-up. And then the asbestos strike happened in 1949, and he saw the, the abuse that the police, condoned by the company, were inflicting upon asbestos miners who were just on strike because suddenly they knew that it was bad for their health and maybe they should be concerned. And he grew very disillusioned with his role he suddenly started to side with the miners. And indeed, he wasn't really encouraged to look after the miners who had been beaten by the police, but he did. Soon, Smith left Johns Manville and Quebec because of the violence that he had witnessed. He then grew in conscience later on in life and decided he was going to testify to the deceit and denial that the company had performed on various asbestos workers throughout North America And the night before he was to do that, he was killed in a hit and run, which that's all we know. And the more you look into the asbestos industry, the more that gives you goosebumps. 
The Johns Manville Company finally went bankrupt in 1982, and the Jeffrey Mine in Asbestos, Quebec was closed. Even though they'd been treated appallingly by the Johns Manville Company, the mine closure would mean the end of their livelihoods and the end of the community that they had built. It's hard to miss the mine in Asbestos. It butts up against the houses, a deep scar in the landscape that nonetheless means everything to the people in this town. The mine closed last month, and today half the town, about 3,000 people, turned out to protest. So, 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 so. And to ask the government for help. But that wasn't the end of Canada's asbestos industry. With the help of the provincial government, some of the workers of the Jeffrey Mine were able to purchase it and continue operations. And by that point, asbestos was already ubiquitous in buildings and products across the country. My name is Tavia Grant, and I work for the Globe and Mail. I've worked there for the past 15 or 16 years, and I have uh, written fairly extensively about asbestos. In 2014, Tavia published an investigation into asbestos-related deaths in the Globe and Mail. I had been curious about on-the-job fatalities and how people die at work. So we started looking into workers' compensation claims to get a sense of what causes these deaths, thinking that they're preventable and that this could be a topic of public interest. I had thought it might be ladders or falling from scaffolding. In fact, what it showed by far is that people are dying from asbestos-related diseases. It's the number one job killer in Canada. And even today, asbestos can be found almost everywhere. It is widespread. In fact, there were subsidies to put it into homes in the form of insulation. I was quite preoccupied by the fact that we put it into a lot of First Nations housing. So it is very prevalent in older homes, and that may show up in stucco walls. It may show up in tiles and roofing and especially insulation known as zonalite. Asbestos is common in schools, in hospitals, in the brake pads of your car. Just last week, Johnson & Johnson split off a part of its company to protect itself from bankruptcy because they had been putting asbestos in talcum powder for decades. And the prevalence of asbestos-related diseases is increasing, not decreasing. For 25 years, at least in Ontario, there's been these increased incidences. There's mesothelioma, there's also lung cancers and other diseases. There's been traditionally far more men getting sick, but now the incidence among women is is rising. So we have not yet seen the full extent of what the impact has been. There's been a number of sort of waves of who's getting it. And there were people who were very directly involved with the asbestos industry. So miners, shipbuilders, people in manufacturing. There was a huge wave and they were predominantly men in blue collar jobs. But there's been subsequent waves where it's also been white collar or professional workers where you have people in schools. I've interviewed researchers and university professors who have gotten asbestos related diseases from being in universities. There's an estimate from Carex Canada that pegs the number of Canadians who are exposed at about 235,000 people. And as the cases of mesothelioma and other asbestos-related illnesses rose, the federal government continued to throw its support behind asbestos. The Canadian government was a fierce, vocal, and very consistent defender of the industry. 
Canada for years downplayed the health risks to the public. And you could see that on Health Canada's website, which talked about the fact that it was totally safe if used in a controlled manner and that one type was maybe not as dangerous as another type. And it's fine as long as it's not airborne. And I looked at other countries' websites at the time, and and some like Australia were just incredibly blunt, saying this is deadly material. Not only did Canada support the industry at home, it stymied international efforts to clamp down on asbestos. We were blocking efforts at improving safety. And the way that we were doing that is a Rotterdam Convention, which is a UN treaty that would require exporters of hazardous substances to just disclose the risks. For years, like 2006 to 2011, Canada was really the only developed country in the world to oppose bringing asbestos under the control of that convention. And it wasn't until 2012 that the federal government said it would at least stop blocking the inclusion under that convention. Heidi von Polask still remembers how defiant her father was as he was dying from mesothelioma. You know, and I remember that last day really well because he, that was it. He just didn't want to live anymore. He didn't want to be on an IV. He didn't want, you know, to be hooked up to machines. And, you know, the idea that he was, you know, probably not going to go home. He, you know, he just started pulling everything out of his veins and, uh, and he just, he just wanted to die. He just wanted to die. Her father's death was hard on the whole family, but they had known for a long time that it was coming. It was four years later that she got the news that truly devastated her. Her mother, who had never worked in the Johns Manville plant, was also diagnosed with mesothelioma. She was given four months to live. You know, that's when our worlds really changed. Heidi's mother had been exposed to asbestos because she used to do her husband's laundry when he came back from work. Heidi barely knew what to do. Not only was her mother sick now, but she now knew that her entire family was in danger. At a time when I should have just been thinking, my mom's going to die within you know, 46 months, and it was, it was four months, I was worried because I had a, a child, and I thought, I, I could have it too. And my sister could have it. We could all have it. And so there was this cloud over the whole family where we couldn't just think about losing my mom. We were also worried about who would take care of our own children and, and if, if, we, if we got sick. About a month after her mother was diagnosed, Heidi's sister called her. She told her that they had to do something. They had to make this a bigger issue. And I remember that day, I was lying on my sofa thinking, I can't, I can't make my mom feel better. I can't save her life. I can't take away any pain and I can't suggest treatment. There's nothing to be done. She is going to die and it's going to hurt. So when my sister said that, I thought that is something I can do. And so she told me that, I guess I talked to her about 10 o'clock in the morning, and by about 2 o'clock, I had gotten CBC to do a radio documentary about asbestos and about, you know, my mom being sick and my dad dying. And then it just, it just took off. I just kept telling the story again and again. This was 2011, and Heidi discovered that not only was Canada still mining asbestos and frustrating global efforts to label it a dangerous substance, but we were exporting it to developing countries like India, where it was still used as a building material. You could go into huge, you know, asbestos plants there where the asbestos was flying around in the air and nobody had anything covering their their faces. Her mother, even as she was dying of mesothelioma, one of the most painful cancers around, joined in the fight too. 
but she was very brave. She she got around. She did you know she did an interview four days before she died. You know, basically saying that um, that she thought as long as it was being exported, that we are complicit in murder. That was an incredible gift that she gave to the world. And then she died four days later. And she did the most extraordinary thing when she died. I was with both of my parents when they died, which is very hard. My mom had gotten so small, she was like a child. She'd lost so much weight and I had her in my arms and my sister was there, so the two of us again. And she went through her five children and then she'd say, I love you. So she'd say, Wolfgang, I love you. Aurora, I love you. Heidi, I love you. And then when she did the five, she would start with the oldest grandchild. And her voice just got smaller and smaller and smaller till there was no more breath. Then she died. So she she made a point of dying with the words love on her lips. And she's the bravest person I know. I mean, that's extraordinary. After her mother's death, Heidi didn't stop campaigning. And because of the work of activists like her, the Quebec government decided to stop providing financial support to the Jeffrey Mine in 2012. It closed that same year. When that happened, I thought that it would be a time of popping a champagne cork and I would feel that I had you know, done the thing I promised my mom and that we had won. And uh, I didn't at all. I started sobbing because I focused all my grief into the fight and I was angry. But suddenly with that gone, with those minds closed, that anger stopped and that left a lot of room in my heart for grief and it just flooded in. I think I still am grieving all these years later. Last year, the residents of Asbestos, Quebec, voted to change the town's name to Val des Sources. It's a turning of the page for a town that was at the very heart of this industry. The asbestos industry should be remembered as part of a shameful era of Canadian history and Quebec history, for sure. And these workers did play a role in it, definitely. But at the same time, they were being exploited. They've been through horrors. Horrors and horrors and horrors, and they, they maybe deserve this second chance. But even today, the global asbestos trade continues to thrive, mostly in poor countries. We should not be giving poisonous stuff that's unlabeled to countries where the people are more disadvantaged than we are, and we're doing it to make profit. There's only one word for that, and that is evil.
that's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please support us. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com and leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Jessica Van Horsen, Tavia Grant, and many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at commonspod. You can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional reporting by Tristan Capicchioni and additional production by Damilola Lola Oname. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.